Welcome or welcome back to Proning News. It's Dave and Matt here talking all things Ekaden. So as many of the listeners would know, Matt's been spending some time in Japan, uh, quite a lot of time actually in Japan, and, and will continue to do so through the Ekaden uh, races in, in the new year. And I have been eagerly and anxiously awaiting many of his videos releasing on Sweat Elite. So for those who haven't seen that or seen those, I would go watch them. This is not meant to replace them by any means. This is meant to be additional to that because uh, I was more interested and had more questions for Matt. So, so please go watch them, particularly the first episode is really good for a good rundown of the history of Ekaden, what the word, term Ekaden means, how the teams work and stuff. We will touch on some of that, but just be weary that um, this isn't a standalone piece of uh, podcast audio. Like Those videos are great and worth a watch. So that's the caveat. Thanks for joining, Matt. And oh, the other thing I would say is we talked briefly about Ekaden previously, episode 14. Uh, was how to fix running and we talked about running teams and that and and that's part of why you know we really want to do this podcast is like at least for me i think one of the things we need in running is teams because runners can't run that much especially in marathoning i would love to follow a series teams who's winning you'd have more buy-in so that's all to say thanks for spending the time matt to, to rehash some of the stuff you're living at the moment yeah, thanks for introducing Dave. And uh, wow, I appreciate the kind words and and the and the pump up. I mean, I try and keep this somewhat separate from Sweatily stuff, right? And you know, you've got you know you're always uh, a brand that's that's in the running space too. And we try to keep this a bit individual. But I think it's a really good opportunity to sort of almost expand upon what we spoke about in episode fourteen. And I must say, you, you gave me you gave me some funny feedback yesterday because I know you watched some of our videos on the treadmill, and you said you yeah, started to struggle I, I, in episode you know, in episode two when it yeah. became Japanese. <laughs> Well, I watch almost, I, I mean, I pretty much watch all of your videos on uh, on the treadmill because they're visual media, right? Like I do watch some YouTube videos, of, you know, other videos, but it's often more audio. It could be a podcast. Uh, it's clips from shows I'm interested in, whereas your stuff is, is very visual. So, and running on a treadmill is not particularly fun. And I've been doing a bit of it recently. So, so I enjoy throwing my phone on the treadmill, just watching your videos. Um, great for, for video one, but video two, I think you did the right thing, which is, keep the Japanese audio and put subtitles there. It's just my eyesight's not great and my phone's not real big. So I probably need the the laptop out or, a, uh, and I have a rig for that. So that's probably what I'll do this weekend. But um, that's probably the, the word of warning there. But that'll also out me as the fact that I've only really watched one and a bit of the videos. But I guess because we aren't doing a full, you know, this, this isn't standalone, but at the same time, don't want to rehash too much. Let's quickly go over like the format for Ekaden because until that video, I didn't realize it was university versus corporate Ekaden. So yeah. let's like quickly give us a, give us a two minute rundown of like, you know, what's the difference between the two and when are they and that sort of stuff? Yeah, for sure. So, you know, I actually, funnily enough, before I came to Japan, wasn't super clued in on the differences between the two. I knew there was two races, but that was about all I knew. And I thought that the corporate Ekaden was the big one and the university Ekaden was the sort of the secondary one. Turns out that was not the right way to look at it at all. Um, so there's a, a corporate one that happens on the 1st of January and it's actually called New Year Ekaden. And that's the corporate race. And that's only on the 1st of January and it's a shorter race. It's 100K and it's on one day and it's legs of around 10K for the corporate teams. The university one, which is what most people would have heard about, is the one called Hakoni Ekaden. Now, that's actually the huge one, and that's on the second and third, and that's a two-day event. And so that is an event whereby it's 217 kilometres. Uh, the first day is 109, and the second day is 108, I believe. I might have it off by 1K. 
But either way, the, on day one, so January 2 of the Hakone Ekaden, the university one, five athletes put together a leg of around half marathon each, which totals about 108K. Distances are all between about 19 and 22K. They're not all exactly half. They're all around that. But each leg is kind of famous in its own way, and they all have like records for each split and each leg. And so that's day one. That's day one, which is January 2. That's Hakone Ekaden University. And then on day two, sorry, January 3, the University Ekaden, they come back from the location that they just finished day one at, January 2. So I hope I put those days of the, of the month. That, in the, yeah. Yeah. Is that the same route? Do they run back? Like, is it just an out and back or is it a slightly different route on the way back? It's it's very slightly different. I think it's all more or less the same, but I think there's a very small change at some point at the start of day two, I, I believe. Um, okay. Let me get back to you on that because we're, we're probably going to record another one after the fact, but I'll get I'll get back to you on a specific answer to that later. But it's it's more yep. or less the same route coming back. It's just very slightly different. And same runners day one and day two for the no. Hakone Ekaden, the university. No. So different runners. So you run one, you run a half marathon, and then you're done for the day. So there's 20 runners in the team. Crack on, and then reserves. Ten runners in the team. Ten legs. Five on the first day. Five on the oh, second sorry, day. Sorry, yeah. Yeah. Don't mind my math, which is no, 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 no. I think most people would have made that made that error in their mind too. It's 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 a little bit hard to to wrap your head around. But let's well, part of this episode yeah. is trying to clear all that up. Yeah. Yeah. And and the corporate one. We, you mentioned it's like how far are they running their legs? I guess is probably the the easiest way to ask the question. I was thinking. Yeah, they're all around. They're all around ten k each. So there's actually a really good website that we'll put in the show notes, and I'll, and I'll read out specifically what that says. The next sort of the second biggest Ekaden of the year is, is the Hakone Race, which is New Year Ekaden held on January first. A variety of corporate running teams enter the national championship each year to fight it out over the hundred kilometer course. Um, uh, it just sort of mentions that it's broadcasted on on television and covered on the radio as well. So yeah, this is very roughly 10k legs each. Not all exactly 10k, pretty similar. Um, yeah, they're sort of always yeah, always around that. But also, it's the same principle that is almost like you kind of be- can become almost semi. It's a little bit like the Tour de France in that there's stages, and you can become sort of famous for being really good at that particular stage because this course is yeah. also not flat at all. And there's one very yeah. famous uh, part in the Hakone Ekaden leg. Uh, I think it's leg leg six or seven, one of those two. And it's extremely hilly. It has something like 800 meters of elevation gain in, a, in the half marathon in the 20.9K. So not quite half, but close. Yeah. So, yeah. That's, uh, I mean, I used to run a lot of trail races in Australia and it was really common to have 21Ks with a thousand meters of elevation gain up and down. And that's like, that's a serious, I mean, it's serious climbing. Like that's, that's real. So um, for road stuff and for people who are not trail runners, that's, that's really, I mean, somebody who does some trails it would go well on that, I guess is what I'm saying. Um, it's really like two observations just off the bat. In most of the world, university races or high school races are shorter than the university and then universities are shorter than, than professionals. So it's interesting that it's the other way around. It also speaks to, the depth of Japanese running when it comes to the two distances in half marathon and 10 K, right. They, they're probably the two deepest countries in those, um, in those two distances, perhaps not the 10 K perhaps Kenya is a little bit deeper in the 10 K, but um, if there was a road 10 K, it'd be interesting to see where Japan finished out. I'd say that there's probably not the top end um, there compared to somewhere like Kenya or Ethiopia, but that next rung is probably deeper in, in Japan. And that all of that in both cases speaks to um, opportunity and what it creates, right? So there's a lot of opportunity 
for good runners in in Japan, there's a fair amount of opportunity for great runners outside of Kenya and Ethiopia in that you have to be great to make the international stage. Therefore, there's opportunity that they have those. They probably don't have that next one down because what are you going to do, race in Kenya? Like, it's not going to happen. There's no money there for you to race. So compared to Japan, with a lot of money to be on one of these teams, I assume. On the, I assume the Japanese students are students, true students, maybe get scholarships, but don't yes. get paid. Is that fair to say? Yep. That's exactly right. Um, and talk to me about the corporate stuff. This is interesting because there's some parallels here to a world I'm involved in rugby where uh, you have these corporate teams, they bring in internationals, like big signing players, but one of the biggest players in the world. And the, the international players are professional, but the other players are employees of the company and get paid to train, but they get paid to they have to work in the companies as well. And so you've got like Panasonic is one of the people in there. So they work in the factories and stuff. So is that the same with the corporate teams here? Yeah, it's exactly the same. And we actually filmed our first corporate team two days ago. Um, corporate teams are not as open to the filming side of things, of which I actually don't have a very good answer or, or hypothesis around why that is. But let's put that aside for a moment. I actually asked a couple of the athletes in the team that we filmed the other day, um, what they do for work. And this was actually a corporate team sponsored by a large supermarket brand. And the athletes actually work in the supermarket one to three days a week, doing regular stuff yeah. in the supermarket. So these Kenyan, yep. there's actually two Kenyan runners there. They're both sub 28 minute guys. They're both run 27, 50 something for 10K. Uh, they actually work like in the deli. And funnily enough, the two Kenyan guys actually speak no Japanese at all. And let me tell you that that's, <laughs> I, I love this country. It's actually one of my favorite countries, but I have, would have a very hard time living here because very, very, very few people uh, speak only, in, uh, sorry, very few people speak English and, and can understand you. So these guys actually work in a supermarket where they can't even really communicate with anyone. Uh, of course, all the Japanese guys in the team, which is most of them, they, they, they're working in the supermarket as well, but they're doing very simple jobs. And from what I've understood, it's the same in all the companies if it's sponsored by that team. Yeah. That brand, that sorry. That makes brand. tons of sense. That's so interesting. And I assume they, yeah, yeah. I assume they train around that and it's, you know, there's a bit of leeway given, which is, you know, very reasonable a lot of leeway given. It's It's 100% leeway given yeah. in the sense of like the the team, the, the, the training comes first. They'll never be given a shift to expect to turn up yeah. to when there's training on. They'll basically train when there's easy days and when they're certainly not running workouts. Yeah. 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 That makes sense. And those Kenyan guys were scouted to go over there and run for these teams. Like they were brought in. They were the ringers, so to speak. Yeah. Yeah. They were scouted. Yeah. There is a rule too that uh, in the corporate events, you're only allowed. So Ekaden in the corporate. So I'm still working my head. I feel like I've become somewhat educated in the university space, but the, the corporate space I'm still learning about. So I don't have all, I wouldn't be able to sit in a long Q&A about the corporate side, but I do know that in the corporate side, they've only allowed one foreigner per team on the day. But let's also remember that the Ekaden yeah. is not the only event they compete in. There's lots of events through the year. Some of them individual races, some of them yeah. are not. I haven't actually wrapped my head around what everything means when it comes to points and stuff like that. Ekaden's the big one for sure. Yeah. But those, both of those Kenyans can't actually run in the Ekaden race. It can only be one of them. Yeah, it's the same with the rugby stuff. They get like something like you can have five internationals, but only three in the match day. Something like you can have as many as you want, five in the match day squad, three on the field at a time. So sometimes you make a sub, you have to sub two people because... Yeah, you're replacing position for position, but if you're bringing on an international, another international has to leave. So it gets a bit complicated. It's, it's fascinating. I love it. Yeah. I, I really love that. Um, super cool. 
Um, I know there was an Australian woman who went over and was part of one of the corporate teams. I don't remember who it was. It feels like it was Eloise Wellings, but I cannot remember. But for Australian listeners, it was mentioned a little while ago. I think she was on the Inside Running podcast and talked a bit about it. It was, but it was like years ago. She would have mentioned it. it was really interesting. Mm. Um, I wish I'd researched that before cool. because so, I remember I remember vaguely hearing about that too, but I can't remember who it was. I know people listening yeah, probably know fine. who it is, but yeah, yeah, yeah. Send us a DM on Instagram. We'll share it. Uh, if if uh, yeah, if you remember who it was. Um, I saw the beginnings of that episode too, and you had, you went to a university and their setup was absurd, mate. <laughs> yeah. Let's talk about that. Like, what are you seeing? I mean, these, I assume these universities have just got ridiculous facilities because this is like the big thing for them, right? They're not, you know, in America, there's tons of facilities for running. Sure. Like, you know, Oregon Ducks, but the Oregon Ducks also spend a bunch of money on football. Like that's not the thing in Japan. Like it's, it's pretty much running and I'm sure there's other sport, but it's, it's nowhere near as big as running. So let's talk about their facilities. Yeah. You saw there, they had an altitude room. They had crazy treadmills that went up to like 30 Ks an hour. Uh, what else was going on? Yeah. It seems like, it seems like a kind of standard in the sense that uh, I like the parallel you joined, you drew to the NCAA and the American college system, because in many ways it's a little bit similar because I've, I mean, I actually went to an NCAA college for a very brief period of time in 2007. And I noticed back then that because I went to a bunch of universities to race and I actually looked at a few other universities to join and the facilities really varied university to university. Some universities had a brilliant outdoor track an indoor track, an ice bath, a uh, big gym facility, et cetera. And some of them was brand new and they were five uh five star I, you know and, and so forth and some of them were much worse than that in the sense of maybe they didn't even have a gym they didn't have an indoor track their outdoor track might have been very aged so it was, it was a big spectrum of sort of uh quality when it came to universities same thing here so the episode that you saw um with hosai university they had a very very good setup because clearly the university invests money in that space probably more money than most that was a bit of an exception. I asked a few people if this is normal and it seemed like it was not very normal to have a room uh, with an altitude chamber where you could have, I think there was seven treadmills in there uh, and four of the treadmills were relatively normal treadmills. Uh, they go up to maybe three minutes per kilometer or slightly quicker, about 4.45 per mile. Uh, but then there was two treadmills in there that were special treadmills that went up to 30 kilometers an hour. Now, you could probably do this math quicker than I can, but is that like faster than world record 100 meter pace? It's close. It's very, very fast. It's, it's, it's a pace that distance runners wouldn't normally be touching. <laughs> yeah, like it's it's a sprint treadmill. So yeah. yes, it's rough. It's roughly, it's, I think it's probably like 10 or nine second 100 pace average, but remembering that those sprinters get up to faster than that and then they slow down or whatever. So like, yeah, let's call it enough that enough that no distance runners ever thought about running that fast. Let's put it that way. Yeah. Um, so yeah. That's super interesting. They also had a bunch of students in there, like analyzing data live and all that stuff. Like resources are just unreal there. I've never seen anything like it. And uh, as, you, yeah. as as most people listening would know, that I've I've seen a lot of stuff in this running world, and I've never seen such an advanced uh, tech tech setup in my life. It was really cool. Go watch the video if you want to see more. It's it's really interesting. Yeah, I mean, it reminds me a lot of what I've seen in some S and C spaces in different colleges and stuff. But yeah, like you're talking about economies of scale there if you've got five interns it's fine if you've got 60 guys but if you've got a team of 10 like or a team of 20 it's very different so that brings me to the thought of like sports science coaching that sort of stuff where are these who are these coaches where are they being sourced from are they bringing you know international coaches in are they all japanese what's the story there like are they is it kind of american college style system where it's like yeah you went to this college we'll, we'll bring you back because 
you're a good runner or whatever? What's the story? Yeah, it's, it's actually it's actually mostly like that. It seems like my sample size is still quite small. I've only been to four universities uh, and one corporate team. So um, let's revisit that one in a few months. But I can tell you that for now, most of the coaches have been past sort of stars of that university where maybe back in the late 90s or early 2000s, they were like the ace. There's this term actually called the ace, uh, which is kind of like the yellow jersey. No, it's not like the yellow jersey, actually. It's just basically the fastest runner in the team. They're called the ace. And so I think three out of the four universities we've been to, the uh, a past ace is now the coach. Uh, so uh, you can maybe call it like a captain and the fastest of uh, of the yeah. team. So yeah, not yeah. sure of accreditation be... or education of the co- of coaches. I assume that there's some sort of setup. Let me actually dive into that and get back to this podcast about that. Uh, I would I would definitely be be assuming that there's some pretty solid education required to, to do that. But they're all very experienced runners. Yeah, I mean, look, listening to the coach talk translated and then reading some of the stuff in the second episode like they sound like they know what they're doing don't get me wrong like they may or may not have accreditations they may or may not have studied but they sound like they're doing a good job from what i've heard there looking at them the way they talk about the athletes and that like i would have assumed like and it's a very rude assumption um it's what i assume of many colleges as well is like it's kind of we've got enough people that we can just throw mud at the wall and whatever sticks sticks and like if a couple of people break then so be it and i know that's not true of the colleges in the states and i'm sure it's not true in japan but i assumed it would be that sort of mentality is like here's the program you do it and you crack on when in actual fact it was really individualized like hey we've got different groups different paces you put yourself within that group we can talk about you changing groups you know if you're not feeling good drop down a group like all that stuff that is considered good coaching so my apologies for my assumptions there but that was really interesting to see uh, do they do anything like monitoring wellness or anything like that? Like taking heart rate, any like heart rate variability, any of this stuff where it just haven't seen any of it? I haven't seen any HRV, but that doesn't actually mean they don't do it, but they definitely do quite a bit of lactate and heart rate training. But as you'd expect, not all colleges have the same stance, very much like NCAA set up. Some colleges will have, some universities here have a much, uh, much stronger emphasis on measuring lactate and heart rate. Others, maybe not so much. So, but absolutely, there is uh, there is lactate being uh, being measured, lactate, um, you know, millimoles per, per liter by the devices, and there's also um, some heart rate uh, testing as well. I, I I haven't seen a lot of the heart rate stuff. In fact, now that I think about, it, the only time I've really ever seen it is in the video you're referencing when all of those mm. uh, those students are in there analyzing that poor little dude running up that treadmill at 2,600 meters altitude. <laughs> this guy so is tiny, and, and he's actually. So that guy that you see in the video that that I'm referring to, he actually holds the course record for that really steep part. Um, he did it last yeah. year, did the fastest split ever on that leg. It was something like 66 flat no. for 20, 20.9, 20.9K with 800 metres of climbing. This guy's a 61-minute runner. But he is, he is an absolute demon up the hills. And he was doing a treadmill murderous. run. That's Yeah, uh, yeah, I'm almost sure that was. I, I, I believe you. I'm just like yeah. I. I just I'm astounded by like that. That's it. Doesn't surprise me, but at the same time, it's astounding. Like it, both yeah. of those things can be true. Like it's that's so fast up that much elevation. Like mm. for, for Australian listeners, Point to Pinnacle is considered the world's toughest half marathon, right? That's what they all say. It's an absolute lie, but that's from Hobart to the top <laughs> of I can't remember the name of the mountain. I've run it. I went like you know 150 something. And two hours is meant to be a good number. It's basically uphill the whole way. It's a thousand meters in that you just run uphill the whole way. I think it's a thousand meters. Maybe it's more, but like there's, I mean, winners are going up there in good times, but they're not going up there in an hour. Like, geez. No. Anyway. So, yeah. So be it. Um, 
let's talk some like media stuff. So sponsors, branding, like are these teams, I, obviously they're, they're running for a company if they're the uh, corporate and, you know, for the university otherwise, but are there other sponsors that are on board aside from those things? Are, like, are there brands on board with these universities or, or companies? Yes. I'm going to I'm going to uh, try and find out more about this but there's absolutely brands involved with the obviously the the corporate new year acronym these teams have a name sponsor so there's the team Subaru uh for example um so that's actually the name of their university is the brand sponsor they're allowed to have smaller sponsors from what I understand I'm not sure how much exposure they get at the universities is a bit different because there's no money really involved uh but they do have Nike and Asics and on and these sorts of brands uh, at least giving them gear but I'm not sure if there's any money being exchanged I'm going to try and dig and try and find out about that just because I think people would find that interesting and they also have some other sponsors that give them some product so it might be in the form of nutrition and so forth and and, uh, and recovery uh, methods and so forth but it doesn't seem to me right now that there's a whole lot of investment in these teams which is interesting given the size and the interest in the sport. I mean, there's 60 to 70 million people watching the event every year in January. Um, you would have thought and, that that opens and running the door is, to a lot of sponsors, yeah. But but it's also, let's let's be clear, the American listeners would, you know, if you think about this, you go, well, like tons of people watch the Super Bowl all over the world, right? It's, it makes a lot of sense. But at the same time, Super Bowl sponsorships, so to speak, or people who are sponsoring uh, Super Bowl ads, are not sporting companies hmm. because the people watching don't play the sport. That's not the case with the Ekiden. There are a lot of runners in Japan who are running. So it makes a ton of sense for someone like Nike to get on board and sponsor teams or whatever. So that because if your favorite team is using Nike, then there's a chance you use it. And, you know, we will talk in an upcoming episode around um, influences and that sort of stuff. And I think, you know, we talk, talk a bit about that there. So um, yeah, like that's really interesting. And it can, like, are they commercializing? Some of these things, can you buy gear to support? Like, can you buy the, the no. exact gear they run in? Can you buy no? That's such a strange thing because I'm a big I'm a big advocate for getting I love having a unique piece of equipment. Uh, sorry, uh, apparel. And 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 I, you know, in the past I've went and sought out like a Stanford University singlet and these sorts of things just because I think it's kind of cool. Kind of like if you run into yep. someone, it's a good story to talk about and so forth. And yep. I was really hoping on the way here that I would be able to buy quite a few Ekaden singlets. Now, it turns out that's actually not so simple because they don't actually sell the apparel, which, again, is a big question mark in my mind because I would have thought that would be a really big deal. I'll never forget going to Stanford back in 2016. They actually have a massive shop with only apparel, this huge oh, like, yeah, yeah. store. So that was all that was in there. And so uh, yep. I don't know why they don't. So that's another thing I really want to figure out why. I feel like I've got the surface-level answers to a lot of these topics right now. But I hopefully the next time we go on air about this post decadent, I can have deeper understanding as to why this is. But that's a thing that I'm not really quite sure. It, it almost seems like they don't want the entire event to be really about money. And they don't yeah, really I was gonna want say the, that's almost the, like the vibe I feel. Yeah. The commercialization, merchandising, that sort of stuff, like it's very Western. So there's a very real chance that we are imposing our values on them. And it's it's not fair to say that that's something they're interested in. But I mean, look, there is definitely a market for that in the western world and then running or selling their singlets and people are buying them you see people running around in nn gear all that stuff so and that's part of what we talked about is like to create teams to create fanatics and that you need gear so people can buy in i would love nothing more than to have say five or six running teams running 
brands, whatever, and then have names in the back of them. You can buy your favorite runner singlet. Maybe it's got a number, like all that stuff, just like any other sport. Why not? All right. So anyway, uh, it's probably some some running purists tearing their hair out and willing to send me hate mail. So so be it. Welcome to the 21st century. Um, <laughs> let's talk training styles. Like what do you see in there? I mean, mm. so these people are running fundamentally somewhere between 10 and 21 Ks. So we're talking 10 K and, and half marathon training here for the most part, uh, plus some hills. So like what is the training looking like there? Yeah, there's a lot more. I'd, I'd learned this from 2020 when I came to Japan for the very first time looking to, to do content. The training here seems to be a lot more based around threshold than around VO2, and it makes sense. But I very rarely see an interval less than a kilometer here, which is interesting. It's different. You know, there's a lot of classic workouts from the West of 400s and 800s, and there's the Yasso 800s, and then there's a uh, I quite like to prescribe 20 by a minute on, minute off, or 25, 400s, and so forth. Never seen anything like that here, but I've seen a lot of very long grinding threshold work, which I'm a, I'm a big advocate of. I mean, that's very, very, it's much closer to what the race is going to be like, right? So one of the workouts that we saw was 3K, 4K, 3K uh, in miles. That's just shy of, uh, it's about 2 point, uh, sorry, it's about 1.9 and then uh, 2.5, 1.9 in miles. And the first one, the first 3K and the last 3K are supposed to be at half at 10K half marathon pace. And then the middle one's supposed to be slightly slower, almost like it's almost like marathon effort or, or right around there. That's, you know, that's quite a lot, lot of volume at right around threshold. And I've seen other workouts that there's just a lot of mile repeats, a lot of 2K repeats. And that seems to be the staple of what they do. I've also seen a... 25k progression run starting at sort of 340 per k getting down to 320 per k uh i've seen a 12k progression run where the first 6k was at sorry i'm only doing k's right now uh but you could plug into the calculator if you want to get specific with the miles 12k and then the first 6k was at 315s and then they did 3k at 310 2k at 305 1k at three minutes and that was all one continuous 12k run so it's basically just 6k 3k 2k 1k just getting quicker and quicker and there was there's lots of there's lots of sort of running right around the lactate threshold one and two point, and not much yep. that I have seen faster than that. Yep. Mm. Well, that speaks to like that's a lot of we we got our most popular episode of all time, and no one's surprised by this is the our episode on the Norwegian threshold uh, training style. And there's a lot of um, I mean the 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 principle that underlies that is the amount of volume you can accumulate and recover from between the two thresholds is exponentially more than that above the second threshold. And that has evolved over time. There's not a lot of research on it. Let's be really clear. If you look at the research, the exercise science research, there's not a lot of research on that, which is fine. There is a form of research called empirical, like sort of not empirical, but um, anecdotal data, right? That is a form of, of data and experience, right? And this has been borne out in different cultures over different times and evolved out. And it, it's a lot of similar stuff. Um, and so that's really interesting in that context of you've got the same thing that evolves separately in two different places. It usually suggests there's a level of um, benefit to it, right? And of course, that doesn't mean that VO2 max work is gone or traditional systems that have worked in other places are, uh, are wasted, right? Or that they're wrong. In fact, there's a great... Um, it's a great podcast for those who are very science-minded called... Yeah. So there's this great episode. Uh, the podcast is fairly science-heavy and it's meant to be that. Uh, it's by an Australian professor called Glenn... Or doctor, or PhD, Glenn McConnell, uh, that 
the podcast is called Inside Exercise, and the episode is number 40, The History of Endurance Training. And it's with Michael Joyner. And he talks about, I think it was uh, Paris Olympics, the, the previous Paris Olympics, and these different training styles and how they all collided there. And I mean, we see something similar at the moment, let's call it um, in the 1500 meters or the mile where you've got the Ingebrigtsen's training a certain way uh, with, you know, double thresholds. You've got more traditional training uh, or not traditional, but you've got different training from people like Timothy Chiriot, from Stuart McSwain, who's doing a very traditional Australian sort of uh, program. You've got Jake Whiteman doing something different and, you know, you've got Josh Kerr doing something different again. So that's to say that there's probably not a lot of difference between these the output of these things, but they all, they all work, I guess. Um, so none of them are perfect. They all work. So, and I guess that's the point I'm getting to, which is really interesting. Um, cool. Anything, I guess, anything else that surprised you that's changed, like anything else, like what's exciting you, Matt? Like, what are you looking forward to sort of picking up? Yeah. So two things, I guess. The, the first one is one thing that surprised me a little bit is that there's a, still a little bit of, uh, of uh, an element of keeping the training secretive here, yeah. which I find bizarre in a way. Uh, I thought that we were past that as as humans <laughs> because I just thought, you know, it, rewind to 10 years ago, 2013, when I was running in the middle distances, I think there was a little bit of that still. I think some athletes sort of thought, oh, I better keep this recipe a bit of a secret for X, Y, Z reason. I don't want people to get an edge. But I think, I think Strava has definitely helped change that attitude because a lot of pros are feeling like well not to mention that strava actually paid quite a few athletes to start posting on strava but i don't know how much they do that anymore but they they did it at first and a lot of pros are seeing the benefit in posting on there for sponsors and so forth and also i think people also realize that the more i share the more people are going to like well, me like they're going to feel close to me because that's helpful for them because the people can learn from them and so forth but we filmed this one episode. I won't call it university, but they were brilliant to work with. But they actually wanted us after we finished the episode to get rid of a whole lot of the video. They wanted us to edit out a whole lot of stuff. And it was all about talking about their strategy. I'm not really quite sure why at the time they didn't think that was a problem when we had the camera there. But I guess they rethought about it, which is fair enough. You can change your mind about stuff. No worries. But they wanted to take out specific bits that share their training philosophy and I was sort of trying politely to say, do you think that's really a secret? Or do you think that's kind of like well-known now? No one really cares. No one really is going to do anything with that. But they were adamant of taking it out. And I thought, oh, man, you know, I actually think it's a better idea to keep it in because people are going to find this stuff really interesting. Nope, they wanted it out. So I thought that was odd. I didn't really understand again, the reasoning. Mm. That's, but again, like we're imposing our values on them, right? Yeah. You just mentioned, hey, we're sharing Stravas that people like me so that sponsors get something. So, but all of that's not as relevant in Japan, right? Like Very we just true. mentioned that it's non-commercial, it's non-merchandise, it's none of those things. So those incentives change and flip. I mean, I, I know there are some endurance athletes who keep stuff secret because they think they're doing stuff differently. Um, and that's okay. Like they get to have those thoughts. They may or may not be right, right? Because if everyone thinks they're doing something secret and they're all doing the same thing and they all think no one else is doing it because no one's talking, then of yeah. course you, you all think you've got an advantage. So, and to some degree, that belief is an advantage in itself, the, like that placebo effect or that belief effect of I'm the best and I'm doing training that no one else is doing. I think there's something there or looking at your opponents and not knowing what they're doing and them beating you and you thinking, geez, they must be doing something special um, or they must be cheating or something like that. Like, there's so much psychology here. Um, I mean, I understand them not wanting to share tactics of how they're going to race or how they think about the race because that is a tactical advantage, right? That is some, slightly different. 
versus um the like the actual training right like this is how we physiologically prepare people fine like that's not secretive or that's like i don't think there's that much um competitive advantage lost or gained there but yeah the the race tactics makes a ton of sense to me yeah that's true you're dead right though in that there's no the the whole the full reason why you slide down the path of going you know what i am going to share everything here because there's more upside those upside here doesn't really exist so yeah hmm. Maybe they've never even thought about it, which is, and look at the end of the day, people that that's that's their right. They have all right to do that. That's oh yeah, their decision, and that's great. Yeah. It, my my opinion and my stance was like, yeah, but I think you're going to get more fans and more people interested in this video if you leave it in. But clearly, they felt like that was not true. So fair enough. Yeah. To what end for them? Mm. What does that yeah, do for that, them? Like they're they're not getting like so. So I become a hostile university fan. How does that help them? Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's true. Maybe they don't so, care. They just want, they just want like, to win the thing. I, I guess they figure if they yeah. win it, they get more fans anyway. So who cares? <laughs> who yeah. cares about this little yeah, video? It's it's, <laughs> it's it's like just a fascinating thing, like human psychology in that respect, for sure. Um, I've also spoken to different um, coaches who come from places where um, they have a language that not a lot of people understand. Uh, and I've used the analogy before in, in strength and conditioning back in, in when I was coming up everyone was trying to get copies translated of the like Russian materials because the, the Eastern Bloc in the 80s and 90s, the Soviet Union, like all that stuff, you wanted all of that info because it was so good. That was so revolutionary. Now, of course, they used a ton of steroids as well, but the like the learning they had was so good and they shared their knowledge so well, but it was all in Russian. Mm-hmm. So you getting these things translated and stuff was like such a big deal. And I think there's almost an, something that happens in those sort of cultures where because ideas don't leave because of the language barrier, they sort of evolve differently and it's it becomes these unique hotbeds. And I, I wonder if there's some of that happening in Japan. It'd be really interesting. I think other than that, that was, uh, yeah, then that's, that's sort of the main things. Um, but yeah, I'm looking forward to jumping back on here once I learn more. I mean, I've been here for, what, just under three weeks. I've got another four and a half. The juicy stuff's going to come out of the race day itself. I have heard that filming race day is very difficult with rights. Um, I am wondering... I'm not sure if I should be saying this live on a podcast, but I'm wondering if it's better if I don't know those rules for the data race. <laughs> but let's see what happens. I just I just keep hearing things that it's super strict with filming. But I just think to myself, if you're not if you're filming from the side of the road though, and you're filming a public area, I don't know. Let's see. Let's see what happens. But I'm looking forward to jumping back don't on it, the on the pod, <laughs> seeing what happens. Don't impose your Western values on them, mate. That's not how it works over there. Yeah, but um, what's the what's the consequence? I mean, I, I'll piss some people off, and I don't want I don't want to do that. Let's be fair. So yeah, yeah. yeah. It's uh, anyway. Um, thanks again for listening to Pro Running News. We'll be back with probably another episode post this with all of um, some more insights from Matt. And uh, of course, as always, share this podcast with somebody. Watch Matt's Sweat Elite videos that we talked about earlier in the podcast for more insights. Rate the podcast, please, and uh, yeah, send us any listeners listener questions onto Instagram. Thank you. Thanks, Dave. And thanks for listening, everyone.